morning we are continuing our study in John's Gospel. And Mark's going to come and read to us from John 14. Our reading this morning is taken from John chapter 14, and we're going to begin at verse 15. This is God's word. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you. For the prince of this world is coming, he who has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Amen. And we ask that God will bless his reading. Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, as we turn now to learn of you. We ask for your spirit to move in our hearts. We need you. You to be our teacher. We to be your students. And with your strengthening and enabling power to obey and do what you would have us do. Bless us now, we ask. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we're carrying on. We left off talking to the boys and girls, to the older folk, uh, uh, who maybe it's a bit more of a stretch, but do you remember school? Remember primary school days? And I asked, did any of you have any really good teachers in primary school? Some of you have to be very careful how you answer that question. You may be sitting in the same room as some of your teachers. And some of you may have to have 
dinner with them today, so be careful. Did you have good teachers? Did you ever really love your primary school teacher? I remember P3. What a good memory I have. I remember P3. I had a teacher called Mrs. Smith. And everybody in our class loved Mrs. Smith. She was an older lady compared to many of the other teachers in this school, but, but, but she was very kind to all the pupils, and, and she had a really good sense of humor. And in those days, school was more to be endured than enjoyed, but, but Mrs. Smith made school great fun. And then towards the end of primary three, June 1967, terrifying, It began to dawn on us in our class that we would have to leave Mrs. Smith's class. And we would move on to primary four and face all its terrors without her. We would no longer be in Mrs. Smith's class. We would be in Miss Finley's class. And that for a seven-year-old was a terrible thought. How would we survive without Mrs. Smith to look after us? The disciples had spent three years in the school of Jesus. And for quite some time now, although Jesus shared this truth with them consistently, they refused to receive the message that he was giving to them. The disturbing news that their days together were drawing to a close. It's as if they, they were sticking their fingers in the and saying, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I don't want to hear this. And now as we reach the second half of John chapter 14, the reality of this message cannot be avoided. Jesus was going to leave them. And as a consequence, their hearts are deeply troubled. And incredibly, Jesus will explain, if you look over into chapter 16, verse 7, he says, it's for your good that I'm going away. Things are not going to get worse for them, amazingly, with Jesus' departure, but they're going to get better. And here in the second half of John 14, Jesus begins a lengthy section of teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit. And realize that as we look into this, we're not going to answer every question about uh, the Holy Spirit. Pneumatology is a big word, the the study of the Holy Spirit, and it's a big subject. So really want to try and just glean some lessons about the Spirit's work in the life of a believer as we focus on these few verses that Mark read for us. And the first thing I want you to note with me is another Jesus. Another Jesus, verses 16 through to 18. Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So imagine you're visiting with 
friends. It's not too difficult, hopefully, to imagine. You're, you're at a friend's house, and they say, let's have some supper, and, and, and they make some supper, and it's a lovely big uh, tray full of sandwiches and cakes, and, 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 and they say, would you like another cup of tea? And you say, I would love another cup of tea. And wouldn't you be shocked if they took your cup and saucer off you and went and got another cup and saucer and give it to you with tea in it? That would be strange. Because whenever they say, would you like another cup of tea, you assume they'll they'll put the tea into the cup you already have. They'll have the same tea in the same cup, not something different. And Jesus speaks to his troubled disciples here. And he says that he's going to ask the Father to send another helper. You see, in Greek, there are two words for another. And this word is alon. It's another of the same kind. Heteros is another of a different kind. Alon is another of the same kind. It's a, if you can imagine my illustration at the start of the sermon, it's a, it's a P4 Mrs. Smith, not a P4 Miss Finley. Another of the same kind. And, and Jesus here is telling us something about the nature of the Trinity. Back in, in verse 7 of, of John 14, look down there and you say, Jesus says, if, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And he says to Philip in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Philip, show us the Father? Jesus is saying, I am another Father. Another of exactly the same kind. There's nothing different between us in nature. There's nothing different between us in our heart. Whatever's in the Father's heart is in my heart. I am as he is. And Jesus wants us to know that he and the Father will send into the lives of the disciples another kind of Jesus. Whatever is in Jesus' heart is in the heart of the one who will be sent to live within the lives of believers. Jesus is sending a parakleton. In Greek, para, alongside kaleo. Someone called alongside. And it's variously translated depending on, on your version. It's counselor, helper, comforter, advocate. And yet, all these words are, are not always enough to help us really understand what the paraclete does. What the Spirit of God does in the life of God's child. In his commentary on John's gospel, Raymond Brown states this. The one whom John calls another paraclete is another Jesus. Since the paraclete can only come when Jesus departs, the paraclete is the presence of Jesus when Jesus is absent. And some of the English words you'll know that are found in our Bible versions are are, are, are legal terms, advocate counselor. They, they, they suggest an association with the law in this term. And it's helpful for us to understand how the legal system operated 2,000 years ago. For then, if 2,000 years ago you find yourself in trouble with the law, you would not be required to go and hire a very expensive barrister to represent you. No. 2,000 years ago, the common practice was to bring your very best friend, the person who knew you best, who knew your life in every detail, to come and stand alongside you and bear witness to your character. 
Now, in my case, that would suit me well because my longest and best friend has a degree in law. But, but, but that's not the point. The point is that here is someone, it's not their legal expertise that qualifies them to be your advocate. It's their knowledge of you. And so Jesus wants us to see a picture unfolding here. He wants us to understand that the, the paraclete, the one who's called alongside us, is someone who knows us intimately, loves us unconditionally, and will stand with us unreservedly. He knows us intimately, loves us unconditionally, and will stand with us unreservedly. He is another Jesus. Can you imagine what it would be like to lose everyone that you loved and found friendship with? Everyone you relied on, everyone who supported you, to to lose them all. There are a few people who have suffered as Job suffered. In Job 19, we find these words, verses 13 to 17. Job says, he has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. And I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. That's a a horrific explanation of the the depth of anguish that Job experienced. Abandoned. He was orphaned. He was uh, forsaken in this world. It was a painful place for him to be. Paul the Apostle knew something of this. He writes uh, from the Martine prison in Rome these words among the last words that he penned to Timothy 4. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Job was left on his own. Paul was isolated in his RFD. Jesus would soon be feeling very much alone as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with even his closest, most trusted disciples unable to stay awake beside him. And Paul then could say in triumph, in spite of this difficult situation in which he found himself. 2 Timothy 4, 16, he says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, testifies Paul. It was not the physical presence of Jesus who stood with him in the witness box. It was the presence of another Jesus, the internal Jesus, the comforter, the counselor. The promise of Jesus to his disciples here in verse 18 was fulfilled. I will not leave you as orphans, he said. You and I today can come to know the intimate fellowship of another Jesus. And secondly, we note that we have another teacher. 
Jesus was very clear about the relationship that he had with his disciples. He was the teacher. They were his students. Verse 13, 14, or chapter 13, verse 14 says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I, your Lord and teacher. And like losing a, a favorite teacher in primary school, the disciples are going to have to manage without Jesus. And we note that they failed so consistently when he walked among them. Mostly, they failed to understand what he was saying to them. They couldn't interpret his words. Even when he unpacked it for them, they couldn't quite grasp it. And quite often, they ended up doing the very opposite to what he was requiring of them. But now they are to have a new teacher, the paraclete, verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Have you ever asked yourself, how could it be that, that Matthew or, or John, as they wrote their Gospels, how could they have remembered all the things that Jesus said? How can we be sure that they accurately recorded for us those lengthy uh, stories and teachings that Jesus shared? Well, we need to know three things. Firstly, that they had a lot less to remember in those days. They didn't know that Montevideo was the capital of Uruguay, so that was one space in their brain. They didn't need to know that uh, four was the cube root of 64. They had more space on their mental hard drive. But also they lived in a culture where people remembered in detail long stories. They didn't watch television. They told stories and stories were passed on with great accuracy through generation to generation. But much more importantly, the gospel writers possessed the Holy Spirit who came upon them for this reason, that they would be reminded of the things that ought to be recorded in the Scriptures. The Spirit would come and He would give them the words for the circumstance, as He will do in the lives of everyone who opens their heart to receive Him. It's the working of the Holy Spirit that brings the Word to life. So you and I, as we come to the Bible, we must ask God by His Spirit to illuminate, to turn on the light of God's Word so that it would speak to us. We read at the start of the service the words that Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.10. He said, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It is only the work of the Spirit of God that can make the Bible come alive in your heart and speak with clarity to you. And we understand this because some of the cleverest people in the world just can't make sense of the Bible. They can't understand it because it is Spirit-dependent. Think of that lovely image of, of, of the prophet Ezekiel of the, the valley of dry bones. And God speaks to Ezekiel and tells him to prophesy. And as he prophesies, the bones come together and flesh comes upon them. And, uh, and this great army is raised up. 
but they had no life, no life until the Spirit breathed within them. And so we too must understand that we can learn the Bible, we can know the Bible, but until the Spirit of God breathes life into it within our hearts, until we have the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, we will not fully understand it. We need the Spirit to be our teacher. We need another teacher. And finally, we need to understand that the Spirit is another homemaker, another homemaker. Last Sunday morning, we were looking at those lovely words, beautiful words from the the lips of Jesus. The promise that he is going ahead to prepare a place for us. But whatever Jesus does, the Spirit does also. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Again, that word home here is the same word that we might see elsewhere as rooms or we might know as mansions or as I was suggesting to you last Sunday morning, luxury apartments. Heaven is not necessarily something we have to experience in another place and another time. Rather, God promises that he will come and build his dwelling place, his resting place, his luxury apartment in us and with us. There is no more heavenly heaven than this, than God living in our hearts. Because heaven is not so much a place. Heaven is a person. Wherever we most fully experience Jesus, The presence of Jesus, that is heaven to us. And that can be in your heart this day. Years and years and years ago, my sister and I used to stand around the piano at home and sing. Maybe some of you know this. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. After I'd wandered in darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the needs of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy I am telling. He made all the darkness depart. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. And this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It means to have glory, the presence of the living God in you. That God would flood your heart, fill your soul with his living presence. And you have to understand that when that happens, it is costly. To have heaven in your heart demands a price. Now, many of you will have this experience, perhaps, that someone has come to live in your home for a time. Not just for a night, but for a week or a month or a year. And if someone comes to live in your home who's not part of your family, you'll realize that, that, that this bears a cost. There's a sacrifice involved. Your normal routine will be disturbed. It'll not be so much about doing what you want, but you have to adjust, you have to compromise, you have to look after your guests. And if God comes and takes up residence in your life by the Holy Spirit, 
things will have to change. You will have to sacrifice. You cannot go on with business as usual. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He writes, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The spirit-filled Christian is not some elitist super-Christian. That's an experience that's restricted to just a few. But everyone who claims to know, love, and live for Jesus should know his indwelling power by the spirit in his heart. And if you think to yourself, you know, I could never keep it up. I could never keep up this call to be a Christian. You're dead right. Of course you could. But with the Spirit of God dwelling in you and His power enabling you, you can. He is another Jesus. He is working to save you. He comes that you would never be orphaned, that you would never be alone, that not even on the dark, the journey through the dark valley of the shadow of death, you will not be left without God's unbreakable, unshakable love in your life. He's another Jesus, He's another teacher. He comes that this book might live for you, might speak to you, that you might be enabled by his empowering to obey its commands. And he's another homemaker. He comes to make his home in your heart so that you and he will never be parted. In just a few moments after this service, I'm going to go home to the manse. But I know something that most of you don't really think about. One day I'm going to have to leave that house. One day it will no longer be my home. I will have to make it available to my successor. But I have another home. It's my father's house. And it's there for me. When I no longer can call the manse my home. I know the other one is already prepared. And if you know the Spirit of God dwelling in your heart, then you can be assured that one day when this earthly temple, this place where God dwells, has to be closed down, your experience will only be greater, more enriching, deeper and longer lasting in an unbroken fellowship with God. Where God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be with you in a place where no temple is required because God is fully present and you are fully with him. And Jesus speaks beautiful words of peace here. But if you want to have peace in this world, 
And if you want to be assured of peace in a life that is to come, the peace that alone Jesus can give, the peace that this world in all its beauty and power is impotent to give, that peace comes from having God's presence, His never-to-leave presence indwelling your heart by His Holy Spirit. If you want to experience heaven in the next world, you have to. You have to ensure that you're experiencing heaven in this world. The presence of God and dwelling by His Spirit, your heart, now He has taken up residence in you. He will come if you ask Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask your word would speak to us with clarity, with conviction, that we would know our relationship with you, that it's not based on our efforts and energies, but by the confirmation of your indwelling spread, working within us, shipping us, molding us, making us into a suitable dwelling place for you. Lord, may we know you living in our lives. May we know the Spirit guiding our thoughts, our words, our actions. May we know this God who comes near, the Holy Spirit ruling, reigning, living, empowering the lives of your people. Lord, be present with us. Make yourself real to us. And give us that assurance that nothing, not even death itself, will separate us from your love because your love lives in us. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.